Welcome to another Pearson Centre webinar on the theme of COVID and beyond. My name is Francesca Iacorto and I'm an advisory board member of the Pearson Centre. I'm also the Senior Director of Public Affairs at the National Airlines Council of Canada. As many of you will know, the Pearson Centre is a progressive think tank that addresses the big economic and social challenges of the day. Our ongoing project is called COVID and Beyond, recognizing that we have a lot of issues to address in this era of COVID-19 and that the recovery and rebuilding will be slow and long and an important time to reimagine Canada. Before we go on though, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsors who make these events possible. The event sponsor today is Aurora Strategy Group, while our two sustaining sponsors are first Canada's building trades unions, and second, the International Association of Firefighters. While these webinars are free to attend, please feel free to visit our website at the Pearson Centre, all in one word, .ca and make a contribution. Now back to the panel. Today we will talk about the climate crisis and COVID-19 with a special focus on the ideas from young people. We have an amazing panel today. We have with us Meredith Adler, who's the Executive Director at Student Energy. We have Stella Markovska, who is an Organizer and Communication Specialist at, at Sustainability Teams. We have Michaela Tam, who is a, a Development Research Analyst at NetHope and the former Co-President at University of Toronto Environmental Action. And last, but by certainly no means least, we have with us Will Amos, who's the Member of Parliament for Pontiac and the Parliamentary Secretary to the President of the Treasury Board with a focus on science. He's also a former director of the U Ottawa Eco-Justice Environmental Clinic. And I'm also pleased to tell you that our moderator today is Ashwin Nair, who is a social policy researcher at the Pearson Centre. With respect to the format, the discussion will last about 40 minutes and then be followed by a Q&A period that will be moderated by the Pearson Centre President Andrew Cardozo before we wrap up at three o'clock or uh, shortly uh, thereafter. Please use the question box on your screen and we will get to as many questions as we can. On a final note, this session is being recorded and will be posted on the Pearson YouTube channel later on this afternoon. Just go to YouTube and search for Pearson Center and uh, you'll be there. It will also be available via podcast in a few days. On that note, uh, over to you, Ashwin Nair. Thank you, Francesca. And uh, thanks to all the panelists for, for agreeing to be here for this um, very important and very timely uh, discussion uh, on the climate crisis and COVID-19. Um, let's jump straight into it. Uh, so the COVID-19 and climate crises are both crises, one with very tangible outcomes, uh, while the other is still treated with uh, somewhat a lack of urgency uh, by larger society. How similar or different in your estimation, and we'll start with uh, Michaela Tam, how similar or different in your estimation do the COVID-19 and climate crises look? And, and what are the parallels uh, between the two crises in terms of their effects on communities at large, but also on people that are that are traditionally marginalized. Michaela Tam. Um, good question. I think that the communities that have disproportionately felt the virus, you know, poor communities, indi indigenous communities, black and other racialized communities in both the global north and particularly throughout a lot of the global south, are the very same ones who have and already are and will 
unequally experience the impacts of climate change. And this unfortunately comes as no surprise as uh, communities that face barriers to access to public needs such as healthcare, food, shelter, water, et cetera, and communities with demographics that have precarious employment and essential jobs are hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, I'm coming here from Toronto, so I'm citing Toronto Public Health, for example. They recently presented data that demonstrated that lower income and racialized communities suffer from greater impact from COVID. But in general, in Canada, race-based data hasn't been universally collected or publicized, which is a real problem because it prevents us from tackling the root causes of what's driving the pandemic. And I think we often compare ourselves as better to our Southern neighbors. Ontario Premier Doug Ford recently said that Canada doesn't have systemic deep roots of racism like the US does, but it's this very like, comparison and the lack of race-based data that contributes to masking these problems in Canada. So the question is, how can you find long-term solutions to the pandemic or climate change if you don't address nor acknowledge systemic inequalities? It's the same logic of exploitation and exclusion that allows for underfunded healthcare to certain communities that continues to subsidize the fossil fuel sector and prevents us from centering the voices that are most effective. And environmentally destructive and emissions increasing activities continue to have uh, well, they continue to happen in certain communities that are seen as more disposable than others, such as hazardous facilities or polluting industries that tend to be located very closely to Indigenous, Black, and other communities of colour in Canada. And on an international level, Canada has recently been in dispute with the Philippines because we've continually shipped our waste there, illegally too. So what I'm trying to say here is, I think the parallels between climate change and COVID lie in the fact that intersecting social inequalities, for example, race, class, gender, able-bodiedness, age, have contributed to our lack of resilience to the problem and our obstacles to our effective response in crises, any crises for that matter. Though they're felt by everyone, they're not felt evenly. And I really wanna hit this point home and these crises actually make visible and amplify all the existing structural inequalities in our current socioeconomic orders, and they're on multiple levels. Um, so the solution to these crises are also parallel to one another, because we need to address um, the roots of the problem and the socioeconomic systems that we're in, and that requires a lot more transformative change than we're seeing now. Um, and those who feel the effects disproportionately now and in the future, like youth, um, since this is part of the conversation today, we need to be a part of the process in fixing the problem. And in all honesty, need, need to be a bigger part of the conversation. What about you, Stella Markowska? Um, how similar or different uh, do the COVID-19 COVID and climate crises look like in terms of their effects on, on communities and, and human beings? Yeah, so I think they look very similar. Um, they're both very intersectional issues. And as Michaela said, um, they're both affecting marginalized communities uh, much more than um, they're affecting other communities, although they will be affecting everyone, especially the climate crisis will be affecting youth and our futures. And I think we need to um, stop treating these things as though they were separate things like the COVID-19 crisis, the climate crisis, you know, um, systematic racism and whatnot. So um, because they're really all connected and we can't have um, climate justice if we don't have equity and we need to be um, finding the roots of where these issues come from and we need to be treating them um, 
as if they're all crises because they are, because um, we need to really start taking action and sort of addressing the roots of these issues, um, not as though they were separate issues and not arguing over which one should come first because they're all really connected. We need to be um, addressing all these issues as though they were one big issue um, in our systems and finding the root causes and addressing that. Okay, so having experienced the twofold nature of this pandemic, you have the public health crisis on the one hand, uh, followed by the economic crisis. Are we, and the, and the question is, are we experiencing sort of a cultural shift in terms of the way that we view the climate crisis? And, and is there a generational divide um, to this cultural shift? And, and Stella Markovska, I think I'll start with you again. Um, yeah, so I think we are. I think um, especially the climate crisis has been a very sort of abstract issue, but uh, now that we're seeing um, how with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're kind of seeing how quickly things can change in ways that we've never imagined and the urgency of the situation can grow seemingly overnight. And the same thing will be happening with the climate crisis. Um, we're also seeing the effects of the climate crisis more and more. We're seeing increases in natural disasters all over the globe. We're seeing people being affected, especially marginalized communities, more and more. Um, so I think there will be, and I hope there will be, because I think this sort of, it's the problem issues are becoming more and more tangible. We're seeing um, the more and more um, of the outcomes of the climate crisis. So hopefully this will be sort of urge us to take action. And I think, um, you know, for the generational divide, um, whereas younger generations will be more affected by the climate crisis because our futures are really at stake, Older generations are going to be more affected by the COVID-19 crisis. And I think instead of sort of separating these issues, we need to have compassion for each other and we need to be working together so that younger generations should be doing everything in their power to prevent the spread of the pandemic. Um, but older generations um, should be taking action towards the climate crisis, should be investing in clean energy, moving away from the fossil fuel in industry uh, to protect our futures as well, um, because these issues are really connected. So if we work together and if we um, sort of take action on both issues, it'll be like a win-win instead of sort of separating which one is more urgent because they're both very urgent issues. They're both emergencies. Well, Amos, um... Uh, are we experiencing a cultural shift in, in the way that we perceive the climate crisis and its urgency particularly? Oh, sorry, Will, you're on, you're on mute. That's a really great question, uh, Ashwin. Thank you uh, very much also to, uh, to, uh, uh, to everyone for having me. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's almost too early to say uh, whether we're experiencing a cultural shift, but I, I think it's impossible to contemplate uh, a world where uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and all that it involves, the health crisis, the economic crisis, the, uh, the, the transformation in, 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 in our, uh, uh, our interactions as humans, I find it, it's, it's impossible to conceive of that not impacting our, our approach to the climate crisis. Uh, and I think it also fundamentally impacts uh, society's views on things as broad as, as science, uh, as, as government. Um, and so I think that, I mean, it, 
it's necessarily going to impact it. How? I think it's too early to tell. I, I really appreciated what Stella had to say about that, that the uh, the increasing importance of a, a sort of intergenerational empathy and the the, the requirement that both you know younger Canadians appreciate the uh, the, the dangerous uh, you know the more uh, vulnerable circumstances that our, our seniors find themselves in uh, and and vice versa on the climate issue. Um, so this is um, you know we're dealing with we're dealing with two s different problems, but both are immediate. And I think that it's important for, you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm an old guy. I'm a dad uh, with two kids uh, who are, you know, who are uh, one's entering high school, one's in grade school. But it wasn't that long ago that I was a young Canadian. You know, I, I was in high school when we went through that second wave of the environmental movement back in the early 1990s. And, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate that, uh, you know, after many years in the trenches as, a, as an environmental lawyer and now having sort of transformed into a, an elected politician, the, the burden is heavy on government and on elected, uh, on elected Canadians. We, and we have to do better by uh, the, the generations to come. You know, will COVID help us seize this moment? I think so. I truly think so. I think, and I think that, you're, I think that uh, we're going to see uh, we're going to see this e even uh, as, you know, as short term as the, the speech from the throne that will be coming up on September 23rd. I fully expect to see very strong signals uh, from our government and a, an invitation to Parliament to support an agenda that is very strong on a green recovery. Uh, because, I mean, we, we, we have no other options. You know, we can't we can't lose sight of the tragedy of the horizon because we're so focused on on the tragedy of the present and the pandemic of the present. We have to have that long and short term kind of kind of view. I'll leave it at that for now. And uh, we'll 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 get to the speech from the throne later on in the webinar. Uh, Meredith Adler, um, you know, Stella and uh, Stella and Will uh, talked about this generating this intergenerational energy uh, when it comes to the climate crisis. Um, what's our path forward on that? Um, that's a great question. I think uh, Mikhail and Stella have both made really good points on on where the fundamental difference is often between young people and even actually those who are older members of the environmental movement now or people who are traditionally part of environmental think tanks and that young people are really focused on how do we take this need for an energy transition and this need to shift to adapt to climate change and actually fundamentally shift the power dynamics that the world operates in. Young people are much more focused on equity. And I think um, Student Energy, we have a network of 50,000 students in 120 different countries. And so we're very much working with a lot of the young people who are very impacted by this. And um, what we're hearing across the board in every country and all across Canada is that, you know, if we solve for climate crisis, if we only solve for carbon emissions and we increase inequality and we increase kind of human rights issues and Indigenous people didn't, still don't have clean drinking water and all of these things, then we really won't have one. We won't have solved the problem or created the world that we should create when we're looking at making this large scale of a shift. And so I think, but I think the good news on that is that, especially when it comes to energy, which is a lot of what student energy focuses on um, in the energy industry, the energy industry is incredibly complex and everybody's very dependent on it. You're dependent on it for your education, for your healthcare. For heating and cooling which are becoming increasingly important issues in Canada um, and so um, 
with that complexity, what it really opens up the, the opportunity to do is foster very sincere intergenerational collaboration because it's been proven that youth innovation and young people when when assisted with the right skill set and coaches and mentors, um, young people are really able to rise to the occasion and provide new ideas and are actually neurologically wired to kind of think outside the box. And there's a beauty to not knowing what they don't know yet about the risk management strategies of the energy industry and other things that are often seen as limiting for both politicians, regulators, and the industry itself. And so when you take young people who are skilled and ambitious and care about these issues and pair them with uh, folks who have been in the industry for 30 years or, or politicians or others, you really can make magic happen in terms of accelerating some of these ambitious ideas that we need and really um, beyond just technology development, accelerating implementation and thinking about it differently in terms of, it's not just this elite pocket of people who understand climate that we need to shift and it's not just politicians and it's not just about getting the CEOs on board. It's actually about how do our neighborhoods relate to this? How do our parents relate to this and our siblings? And I think that's what young people really bring to the table is amazing implementation strategies and new ways to look at the issues um, and what other generations bring to the table is is really some concrete offerings around these highly technical pieces that we need to understand um, so that we don't end up in situations where um, the power grid doesn't work or where these essential services that we get from the things that are currently causing climate change go away because that's also would create a new human crisis if you will okay. Um, what do you think, and Meredith, I'll, I'll start with you again, what do you think we have learned tangibly from the COVID-19 crisis uh, that is instrumental um, in understanding and addressing the climate crisis? And, and Stella alluded to this, they're not entirely necessarily separate, uh, but, but what have we learned tangibly from the, from, from the COVID-19 crisis? The fundamental thing that springs to mind is we've learned how important a human connection to an issue is. COVID is something that's very immediate. It's in people's faces because it has to do with their health and the health of their loved ones. And I think that is actually something that, um, if I can be a little critical of the environmental movement, um, that is a connection that has often been lost in talking about um, <laughs> the shiny pennies of solar panels and, and EVs and chargers and all these things. It's like, yeah, but how does that relate to me? How does that get my kids? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how does that keep my grandmother safe? Um, and so I actually think that, um, you know, there's a lot to be learned about what will people sacrifice in terms of we've had a huge economic hit and primarily Canadians have felt that that's okay because it's, it is saving lives, right? And so, um, and I'm not suggesting that we shut down the whole world in the name of climate change tomorrow, but how do we start to internalize what it is that that climate action means and how we are protecting the health and well-being of those that we care about um, and then also um, how can we leverage this moment of disruption to to create a, a more positive future um, so i think there's a huge communications lesson actually um, within this and then i i think that the other thing that we've seen um, is it's it's really heartening how people can step up to the plate and how um, and how much people are willing to kind of chip in together. And I think that does actually provide a new way forward in terms of what, um, what mechanisms should we be looking at. And I think what's really telling and what actually speaks to youth power within climate is, is how much solutions have come from unlikely suspects. 
I think this is something for the government to really take away is often there are really set, you know, high level advisors that are people are listening to or, um, you know, committees that do this or that or the other thing. Those are actually very generally exclusive and elitist institutions. And I think it really excludes a lot of people who could have ideas or who could contribute to the conversation from creating those solutions. And so I think it's a really big wake up call for everyone um, to think beyond, <laughs> I know this is a think tank, but to think beyond the think tank and to think about how do we actually harvest ideas and momentum from our communities and what would a more grassroots ground up solution look like? Michaela Tam, uh, same question to you. What do you think we have learned uh, tangibly from the COVID-19 crisis um, that, that is instrumental to understanding and addressing the, the climate crisis? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Meredith has been saying, especially with finding grassroots solutions um, and really listening to those voices that we might not have listened to previously. I think we can also address this question in two ways. Firstly, you know, how have we as citizens changed in the way that we understand and address the climate crisis in just the past five to six months? As has been mentioned already, we've seen massive job loss. We've seen almost 180 shift in how we socially interact with one another. And we've seen a movement against police brutality and racial injustice. And I think that's really important because it's not happenstance that we saw worldwide protests against anti-Black racism and police brutality at the scale that we did in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, and as what Stella was saying, a lot of the intersections of the problem are becoming a lot more tangible and harder to ignore. So I think there's been a shift from discourses that have internalized and normalized this idea that our problems are our own, um, that our success or failure is a factor of our personal responsibility, in the social media and news conversations with people my age, at least, I've noticed a shift in understanding the structural and systemic inequalities that contribute to this crisis. I will note that I have been seeing some toxic moral posturing going on in the left social media as well that we can't ignore. You know, people trying to, using youth terms, outwoke one another. But I think countering that, We've also mentioned that there's greater cause for empathetic understanding, intergenerational kind of conversations, introspection and acknowledgement of the privilege that we have as well. And we've also had to deal with going digital. Um, the article that my friend Zaharin and I are working on, I'm helping her edit it, um, explores sort of the future direction of climate justice movement and how that might be under COVID-19 how we can instead use tools like social media to center marginalized voices. And I think in this context, a lot of people have been talking about how to maintain solidarity through digital organization. And in our digital age, I think we can potentially reach across geographical barriers and connect with people we wouldn't have otherwise. We're finding a lot more innovative new techniques about how to um, kind of, yeah, build solidarity in ways that we haven't done before. So. Yes, concerns about corporate surveillance and accessibility have always existed in, um, and I think with new ways to communicate, we'll see new forms of the same issues, but it also brings really great and innovative opportunities to come together and call for greater accountability. Um, I think we can also answer this question 
by looking at learning points for the Canadian government with regards to addressing this issue. Number one, we have the data, we have the scientific evidence, we need to act as soon as possible. And the fact that we knew that this virus was spreading across countries and continents months before our first known case in Canada had health officials still say that it was a little risk, even though we knew that we already had our first and second presumptive patients. It's kind of crazy. You know, there's a lack of foresight in securing personal protective equipment and testing kits, not much preparation with long-term care homes or Indigenous communities, though this has been somewhat addressed now. Um, and these are the learning points. Um, though we're comparatively doing better than the United States, compared to the rest of the world, we're actually not that impressive. And I think that that's something that we should also take note of. Um, and it would be unthinkable now if we at this point still didn't have specific action plans with clear targets and timelines for eliminating COVID um, in Canada, which we do. And so it's really unthinkable that the government still doesn't have a detailed overarching specific nor enforceable law with regards to sustainable development that all governments can adhere to. Um, given that climate change actually inflicts damage over a much longer period. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's sort of a twofold thing. Hello, this is Andrew Cardozo with the Pearson Center. The Center is a progressive think tank that facilitates thoughtful debate and dialogue while encouraging action on the issues that matter to Canadians. The Pearson Podcast is our latest venture in our efforts to lead the Canadian conversation surrounding COVID and beyond. However, we cannot do this without your support. There has never been a more important time for thinking big about Canada's future, nor a greater need for your support. To make a financial contribution to support projects like the Pearson Podcast, please visit thepearsoncenter.ca forward slash contribute. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Okay. Um, so that sort of touches on um, the next question that I'm going to ask. Have governments across Canada, and, and bear in mind, not just the federal level, we're talking about uh, provincial level governments and, and municipal governments, have governments across Canada missed an opportunity to act on the climate crisis during the rollout of our economic recovery plan? Um, if they have, do we still have an opportunity to act? Uh, there, there is a throne speech coming up next month, uh, you know, with speculation of, of a green recovery coming. Um, have governments across Canada missed the opportunity? And if if so, then do we still have the opportunity to act? I'll start with uh, Stella Markovska. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, governments should have been acting on the climate crisis, you know, years ago. I mean, it's been going on for, I think I read an article the other day that uh, people have been striking um, for uh, climate justice for 50 years now, or maybe even more. And um, so, you know, I think, um, like the government should have acted years ago, but now um, during the COVID recovery, I mean, lots of money was spent to help people who lost jobs, which I think was really good. It was very helpful, but um, I'm just thinking where, I think we still have an opportunity um, because where's that kind of action towards the climate crisis? We also need the same kind of urgency uh, towards the climate crisis. And if we keep, um, I think we can we have the opportunity now to act and make a plan but if we keep pushing deadlines back 
um, nothing's really going to happen. We're not really treating it like a crisis um, because if we only start um, moving away from the fossil fuel industry in 2030, then um, I know like we're not saying we're only going to start wearing masks three years from now because that that's absurd. That's not going to do anything. So I think the we just uh, really need a. Um, I think we have an opportunity now because we've completely changed our way of life with COVID. I think we need to instead of slipping back into our old habits, we need to take uh, the opportunity now and have a plan. And we need to be um, acting as quickly as possible because the faster we act, um, the more chances we have to prevent the climate crisis. And we need to start just the way that we're treating the COVID crisis uh, like it is a crisis. We need to also be treating the climate crisis with the same urgency because the effects of it will be longer lasting and have been going on for lots of time now. So I think we just, we really need to start acting and treating the climate crisis like a crisis. Meredith Adler, your thoughts? Have we missed an opportunity? Um, I think, um... I mean, I don't think that we've, we could have definitely acted faster, um, but the window of opportunity is not closed. I think, um, you know, I am excited to see what will come out at the end of September. Um, I do think that, that the green recovery will be important, but I also think that it will be very important that it centers the people who are also have been um, truly impacted by COVID. And so when you're looking at that, you're looking at workers who are making somewhere close to minimum wage women service workers. Um, and I think um, Canada needs to give a sincere thought to are the green recovery measures things that are truly going to help those people who have been hurt? Because I think ultimately faith in these plans and faith in climate action um, is really necessary. You need to be building the next generation of voters and consumers to be the voters and consumers who are going to continue to push for this action and continue to give government the license to operate on this. And so I think um, within that, you know, we need to see some concrete plans for, for just transition of fossil fuel workers, um, for um, really thinking about, okay, if Canada wants to be this innovative, clean tech, climate-driven hub or the center for nature or whatever it is that we want Canada to be, how are we actually going to help all Canadians be part of that? Because I think currently what you see is, is the clean tech industry, um, you know, does not have a ton of diversity and, and the diversity it does have still has a very high, like, privilege component to that. There's a really easy way to break that down and to reform education and to think differently about education um, to help bring new people into the fold of those solutions. Um, and so that's just one example, but I think um, overall, <laughs> not too late to act, but we do really need to get going and we do really need to think about how are we future-proofing this? How are we making this action that people will vote for forever because their lives have been, been made better no matter what the party is, is in charge down the line. I'll come to William Moss in a second, but uh, Michaela Tam, your your thoughts? Um, well, actually, my former co-president, Jen Lin, who's also our external advocacy director in previous years, introduced me to this really cool database just the other day. It's called the Energy Policy Tracker, and it provides um, information about public funding commitments and other government policies related to energy use in G20 countries since the pandemic began. Um, in Canada, I think at least 
over 12 billion is going into supporting fossil fuel energy compared to the 2.37 billion that's going into clean energy. So that's a figure that we need to kind of consider as well. Um, we also need to think critically about, you know, what's good and what's not. Recently, there was about 1 billion of federal funding to clean up um, orphaned and inactive oil and gas wells, which is really great for job creation, public health and the environment. But there aren't conditions to prevent continued dumping by companies into um, inactive wells. And it actually should be the oil and gas industry's responsibility to be paying for that cleanup. That essentially a government subsidy to oil and gas industry like for cleanups. And, and there's also a lack of transparency on the cleanup process. And of course, um, there have been attempts to use the pandemic as an opportunity to weaken environmental protection measures. Um, on the federal level, Minister Wilkinson is scaling back the clean fuel standard in the short term to allow the fossil fuel industry to recover. Provincially, since I'm in Ontario, Doug Ford attempted to suspend environmental protections in April. Um, he revoked that in June. Um, and then the Ontario mm. government just passed an economic recovery bill, which is Bill 197, without public consultation, which makes amendments to the Environmental Assessment Acts that allows essentially development projects to be fast forwarded and restricts Ontario residents from seeking out better environmental assessments and also makes it easier to issue zoning orders. Um, so this is a huge step back as well. So there's a lot of opportunity I think that Canada has taken um, to you know, work towards a green recovery. But I think on the flip side of that, there's a lot of equal opportunity to take a few back steps too. Will Amos, do we still have an opportunity to act, especially considering that there's a, a speech from the throne coming, um, you know, a big part of the, the discussion around uh, a quote-unquote Green New Deal is a green jobs program, um, and supposedly the, um, the speech from the throne is supposed to be one that's, that's greener and that focuses on a green recovery. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, certainly we've got... Uh, We've got every opportunity right now. I don't think that there's any opportunity that's been missed. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that uh, this, this has to be a, a critical conversation. It has to be one that, uh, that is also constructive and that recognizes that people, different people come from different starting points on this. Uh, the starting point that I would come, uh, come from is, is the following. Um, uh, we have the most progressive government on climate issues uh, that we've ever had in Canadian history. Does that mean we're perfect? No. Does it mean that we're a, a, a lot better than any previous government? Yes. Uh, you know, let's let's um, uh, but let's seize the opportunity at this moment to get beyond the polarizing debates that we've had over the past, in fact, more than five years, uh, around pipelines on the one hand and um, uh, carbon pricing on the other. It seems that so much of our energy politically and in terms of communication is getting sucked into that those two those two polar uh, polar ends the 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 reality from my perspective uh, is one where uh, our government is the first to ever um, at a federal level put a price on on carbon pollution which is a great first step and we need to do more uh, this is a government that's invested the most in science beyond any other government in canadian history the most in clean tech uh, and, and clean energy development, the most in public uh, public transit infrastructure, and by huge factors. Uh, 
these are just budgetary decisions, of course, but they're the reflection of what we want to invest in. And those are the kinds of things that bring transformative change. Earlier, um, uh, I can't remember if it was Michaela or Meredith who raised the issue of um, clean drinking water, for example. Um, you know, I, uh, the, way, the way I look at that issue is, yes, we have work to do, but are we uh, more than 60% of the way there in terms of getting rid of uh, uh, drinking water uh, boil advisories? Absolutely. And so we need to do more and continue on the path uh, so that we can uh, so that we can achieve what is a not just a green recovery, but uh, get us on a path that brings a, a more inclusive economy, uh, one where uh, both not just uh, not just generational impacts are taken into account, but also impacts that uh, that are geographic. I represent a riding uh, called Pontiac, which is very rural. And the impacts and the perception of, of the costs associated uh, with action and inaction on climate change are very different depending on where you live. Uh, so um, we, need to be mind we need to be mindful of the different perceptions and starting points. But I think that there's absolutely no question when it comes to the, you know, do we have an opportunity? Yes, this is a major opportunity. This is a pivot point in Canadian history. And I, I fundamentally believe that uh, we as a society uh, must demand of our own governments and not just not just federal, but provincial, municipal, indigenous. We need to change the way we have done business, particularly as regards um, getting us onto a um, a more sustainable path. Uh, and I'm I, you know I'm convinced that uh, I'm convinced that we have the right to. Uh, the right, uh, uh, you know, the, the right circumstances to get there. A minority, a minority parliament, where uh, many different voices must be listened to. We can't. We don't have a government that can just impose its will. We have a government that that must listen um, and and seek a majority of the house in order to move forward. Okay. Thank you. That concludes the 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 first part of our discussion. Uh, we're going to be moving on to the Q&A um, section of this discussion, and I think we're bringing uh, Andrew Cardozo in for this, uh, the president of the Pearson Center. Um, so if if anyone in the audience has questions, feel free to feel free to drop them in the box. Um, I think I will start uh, with this, or Andrew, go ahead, go ahead, you can start, Andrew. Uh, Andrew, I think you're on mute. Okay, you can hear me now. Yep. Um, the first question we have is, is as follows. In Canada and elsewhere, we've seen better air quality during the pandemic. Uh, what can we learn from this? And what will this help the public understand the reality of the climate crisis? Um, maybe I'll ask um, Meredith to start. I'm actually not a fan of this correlation. I think um, I think yes, we have seen an increase in air quality, but I think we we've seen it for the wrong reasons. And and I think this really fundamentally gets to what does a cohesive climate solution look like? And a cohesive climate solution that really brings everyone along does not look like shutting down cities and does not look like rural communities don't get to drive the vehicles that get them to and from work in the snow, all of those types of things. So I would actually say that, um, you know, 
yes, we've had a temporary drop in emissions, but it hasn't gotten to the systemic change that we need. And I, um, and I encourage people not to draw this parallel because I don't, I would hate for you to associate a climate safe future with a pandemic. It should not feel that way. I think that we have the opportunity to build a better, more cohesive Canada in so many different ways. Um, so that would be my, my main reaction. Um, Stella? Um, yeah, so like Meredith said, I'm also not a fan of this. I think that, you know, um, a climate um, justice doesn't look like a pandemic. It doesn't look like shutting down cities. Um, but I think that now that we've already completely, you know, COVID has, um, you know, put us all in quarantine and the air quality has improved, um, I think we shouldn't take this as, oh, everything is fine now, because it's not. As soon as we go back to the way we were before, it's it's just going to get worse again. So I think that now um, is the time to actually, instead of slipping back into our old habits, um, create something better and take this as an opportunity to move forwards uh, as opposed to moving back. And uh, there's actually, I would like to mention, uh, Climate Strike Canada and Sustainability Teams is part of this is organizing a not going back campaign, which is going to focus on uh, instead of going back to, you know, the way things were before, actually taking this as an opportunity to move forward and create something better. Thank you. Uh, Michaela Tan. Um, yeah, I agree with both what Meredith and Stella are saying. Um, also not a fan of this question when I first saw like started seeing these posts by um, some of my friends on social media like look look at the blue skies now I was kind of like oh no because in actuality also these figures might be varied but I think I checked from the International Energy Agency it calculates that we'll see an eight percent reduction in emissions by the end of the year which is nothing um and compared to the societal costs um, and the human lives lost and human lives affected, this isn't something that we should be, you know, advocating shutting down cities. Um, I think the good thing about what's come out of this pandemic is that many people are now seeing that what was normal before was actually a situation of crisis. So we see a lot more conversation towards green but not only green but also a just recovery and that these two components are inseparable you know we've seen organizations come together and um, come up with just recovery principles um and a lot of these ideas which would have seemed radical in the months before covid um perception wise i think they're viewed much more as goals or a necessity now um, and I think that's the direction that we should be looking at in terms of looking at the positives of this, but no, um, just because we see clearer skies, less pollution doesn't mean if this is a good thing for the environment. And okay. uh, thank you. And Will Amos. Well, I think there, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I would say that, uh, I mean, there, there's a positive in the, uh, in the sense that Obviously, the reason there's a decline in, in emissions is because we're we're producing less, moving less, uh, transporting less. Uh, but behind that, in our day-to-day -day interactions as humans, we have recognized that while we don't necessarily want to be 
having this kind of conversation um, regularly uh, or every day, you know, five Zoom meetings a day can get pretty unsustainable pretty quickly uh, at, a, at a psychological level. I think as a society and at an individual and at a family unit level, we're recognizing that we can do more without having to move to get somewhere. And there are, are I think, long-term positive implications uh, of this idea that one can work partly, uh, uh, partly virtually and partly in person in the future. The, the normal, which was always go to the office if one had that, that type of occupation, that, that can be transformed. Now that doesn't represent the totality of Canadians, of course. There are many, many Canadians who are not, not, not working under those kinds of circumstances. Uh, and to be certain as well, uh, as I mentioned, I represent a rural riding. Uh, there are new inequities that have been, uh, or inequities that have been really underscored, and the exclamation mark has been uh, placed on uh, on problems related to uh, uh, rural um, rural internet access. So the possibilities of of shifting uh, or or adjusting behavior based on the on the experience through this COVID pandemic. Uh, those aren't necessarily equally shared across society, but the demonstration has been made that we can work differently if we need to. And so I think that the longer term, that that does create opportunities uh, to create uh, uh, more social efficiencies, if you will, uh, and transportation efficiencies, certainly. And, and, and I think that there are, there are gains to be reaped uh, going forward um, uh, as a result. Okay, I have a question for Will here. Um, considering that the climate crisis uh, threatens national security uh, to an extent, is there a role for the Department of National Defense or the military to play in in combating the climate crisis? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and and the 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 the, the conversation uh, around climate as a, as, a, as a security issue is not a new one. I remember reading Tad Homer Dixon 20, 20 plus years ago on, on this very issue. Um, the, the Department of National Defense uh, has actually been taking incredibly important measures already. Uh, I'll give you an example. Back in 2017, uh, I made an announcement uh, on behalf of the Minister of Defense, uh, Harjit Sajjan, uh, at the, at Garrison Petawawa, and it was a uh, it was a thirty million dollar announcement uh, for uh, energy retrofits uh, and new uh, energy efficiency uh, contracts uh, for for uh, for the base, uh, and this is happening all across the country. All sorts of investments in more you know more efficient buildings, uh, energy system uh, improvements. And these are honestly, I don't think Canadians have seen. 99.9% of what the Department of National Defense is doing uh, on climate. And so maybe to take a step back away from national defense and national, uh, you know, the national security question you pose, um, does this moment offer to governments as a whole, not just ours, but governments as a whole, a major opportunity to reset their, um, their communications around what is being done how it's being done and why it's being done? Absolutely. And we need to get there because as I said before, I think Canadians are really tired of endless polarized debates. 
uh, and want solutions. That's what they, they want politicians working on solutions and being inclusive as they work towards those solutions. Well, a huge piece of working towards solutions is making sure that what you're communicating uh, about what is happening is um, is transparent and open and, and offers opportunities for people, uh, you know, for people to uh, to engage and 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 point to the point their finger to things that are actually, you know, that are actually going forward. I mean, I don't think the vast majority of Canadians know that our government has invested way, way, way more in clean tech, in public uh, public transit infrastructure, in science. As I mentioned before, I just don't think the Canadian public is aware, uh, and they should be, and we need to go beyond that. Okay, um, I have one more question because we're running out of time. Um, so I'm gonna go Stella and then uh, uh, Will. Uh, There's a question from the audience. What intervention points can the government best use to support youth-led climate solutions? Stella? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think the government uh, can start, uh, sort of start listening to youth movements and um, kind of start focusing on making uh, a specific plan um, on a just transition um, from the fossil fuel economy and uh, a transition, a recovery from COVID also um, at the same time and sort of making a green transition that uh, leaves nobody behind. Um, and I think there needs to be a like specific plan on how we're gonna do this and um, immediate action taken and um, as to youth movements, I think this is really what we're advocating for. We're advocating for a Green New Deal to be implemented. So a specific plan on how we can make a green and just recovery that leaves nobody behind. Will? It's a great question. Um, so um, I, I, I don't want to, to, um, to just state the obvious, but um, the Prime Minister recently um, indicated that the process for youth applications to join the, uh, the uh, Prime Minister's Youth Council, uh, they've been extended to the end of August. This is a major opportunity for, for, for youth who participate in, in, in the climate justice movement. Absolutely, there's no reason not to make sure that, that, that voices are heard loud and clear. Um, but near term, looking at specifically what uh, what is going to be happening in Parliament uh, at the legislative level, uh, you know, our government committed in the last uh, in the last election to bring forth uh, uh, climate legislation that goes beyond what we uh, legislated uh, in the first mandate. In the first mandate, uh, a price on carbon pollution was was legislated, uh, and if the provinces didn't act. They were going to. Uh, they were going to have. A, there was a federal backstop that would be imposed. Uh, but now we have a, a commitment uh, to bring forth uh, binding uh, five-year plans. Uh, and uh, based on um, uh, every conversation I've had with uh, Environment Minister Wilkinson, uh, he has every intention of fulfilling his mandate letter, which is to bring forward legislation related to climate. And in that context, the question you've asked uh, is around youth participation. The, uh, the youth of Canada should be involved in that legislative process. They should be reviewing the legislation and and and, and commenting through their member of parliament uh, and making representations uh, to the standing committee that reviews it. I mean, at a, at a certain point, there are uh, 
you know, there are formal proceedings, and that's what that's what I've just mentioned here, the legislative uh, uh, process. But of course, there will be opportunities as well. I, I think that it would be absolutely appropriate in, in, in knowing that our government is going to be advancing uh, a speech from the throne, which is a statement of intent of the direction of our government um, to to bring to bring Canada and to secure Parliament's confidence. It makes absolute sense for the youth of Canada to convey to our government through their through members of Parliament and through the Prime Minister and through various ministers what would one want to see specifically in uh, in a speech from the throne. I think that that'd be absolutely uh, appropriate, and I, I I would I would welcome that kind of input. Okay, last question here uh, before we wrap up. Um, it says, what are the panelists' view of how COVID has shifted the public imagination of what is possible vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, responsive legislation and fiscal policy, and how can that impact climate action? Uh, Michaela Tam? Um, I think this is already a lot about what we already talked about in terms of, you know, for like a lot of the things that seemed more radical a few months ago are now seen as more, you know, necessities or things that aren't viewed as such far-fetched kind of things. Um, I'd like to actually sort of also make note of the fact that when we're talking about youth um, being part of the legislative process and whatnot, we're also talking about the fact that there are certain types of youth that are overrepresented as well. So we're looking at not only youth as a uniform population, but indigenous youth, black youth, um, and a lot of these sort of youth and like who's being overrepresented in media. Um, and a lot of consciousness, I think, in the last few months has been on this and how to also, I, and I say this a lot, is that we need to acknowledge our privilege. The fact that I'm at this panel today is very indicative of the privilege that I have and the access to these platforms. Um, if we're not talking about these things, then we're not also going to go forward as well and, you know, giving people these voices. Um, so my answer is that yeah, I don't really have much to say other than what's already been said because of the fact that we just need to be thinking a lot more intersectionally. Um, and we have been thinking a lot more intersectionally. And I think that is what defines what's possible um, as well. And it really recenters what we need to focus on. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. I'll uh, pass it over to Andrew Cardozo uh, for um, sort of concluding statements. Well, thanks very much, uh, Ashwin, for your moderation and, and a sincere thank you uh, to Michaela Tam, Stella Markovska, um, Will Amos, and uh, Meredith Adler, who's had to leave already. Um, we've uh, we really appreciate this discussion, and I think the, it, it turns out to be very timely. We're having this discussion uh, the day after the government has announced that there's going to be a thrown speech. Uh, to the last point that uh, Will Amos has made, um, I think there's a real opportunity now and in the days ahead, and I would say in the next sort of two to three weeks, not more, uh, for people to get their views across to MPs, to the Prime Minister, to people like Will, because uh, Will is certainly, as I watch what happens on the Hill, one of the MPs who is, who understands and, and you know, has, has 
has addressed these issues and, and fought for the environmental issues, always adult life. Um, I think he's certainly looked at very credibly in, in, in the caucus and on the Hill as one of the MPs that really understands these issues. So I'd say you use these people as best you can to put forward these issues because the, the time is awfully important. And we've come out of a very, um, uh, a crisis period in Canada and the world over. This is a good time to be reimagining Canada. The series that we've had is about reimagining Canada. And certainly this is one of the important issues.